A good, true leader, even an effective manager, will recognize that in order to be more successful, it's not about you, it's about all the others around you. And how can you adjust your own style, your own approach, so that you can help those others do better? Welcome to another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Associate Dean of the Kelly School of Business, Phil Powell. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. So if this is your first time tuning in, I want to take a moment to welcome you to the Kelly family and let you know that this podcast and our resources exist for you. So if you have a question you're wrestling with as a leader, maybe you're working through a tough season um, in your industry, maybe you are just wanting to know what some of our faculty are doing, what some of the trends or research that's happening in the business world, or you know of a great individual who would make an awesome guest for our show, we would love to hear from you. Send us an email to ROIPod. That's R-O-I-P-O-D at I-U-P-U-I dot E-D-U. Again, R-O-I-Pod, R-O-I pod at iupui.edu. Well, I want to first off just welcome our next guest. He is a board certified trauma surgeon, CEO of the American Association for Physician Leadership, which is the only professional organization solely focused on leadership education and management training for the physician workforce and the organizations they're a part of. Dr. Peter Angood, welcome to the ROI podcast. Great. Thank you so much. Privileged to be here. I look forward to the conversation. For the Kelly School, this is a very special episode of the ROI podcast because uh, we're very elated this week that we have, we're celebrating the recent announcement of the Kelly School of Business Physician MBA program becoming an academic partner with the American Association for Physician Leadership. Um, for our listeners, uh, the, the association offers a professional credential called the Certified Physician Executive, uh, the CPE, which physicians earn. And this is a credential that's important for physicians that want to lead healthcare systems and help fix U.S. healthcare. And um, part of that's educational component. And the uh, Kelly School of Business is, is honored to be part of now some of, of, of that journey that some of those physicians take toward that designation. It has been a designation that some of our graduates have already earned. But now we've sort of, uh, you know, both of these organizations, we're 100% aligned on training physicians to fix a broken U.S. healthcare system. So it's just an absolute honor and privilege, Dr. Angu, to have you on this, on this episode of the ROI podcast to sort of celebrate the start of a, of a great journey together. Oh, great. Thanks, Bill. And yeah, you're absolutely right. It is a celebration. It is a celebration. We are very excited to be working with the Kelly School of Business. And, you know, our organization is... Um, 45 years old, and our altruistic drive is to try and create larger scale change in healthcare. And a strong part of the appeal of working with the Kelly School is um, that you guys seem to have the same altruistic drive. It's all about trying to create that significant change in healthcare. Healthcare is a very complex industry, and those who uh, work in it on the clinical side, those who work in it on the administrative side all recognize that complexity. And it's uh, the relationships such as this one that we have now with you guys. It's really going to help create uh, that change that we've been talking about. So, so thank you. And uh, yeah, it is a celebration. Good to be here. 
You know, Dr. Angood, we may not reach a lot of physicians at the moment and they're thinking, you know, why on earth, you know, do we need to listen to a doctor? Like, I don't work in the healthcare industry. I don't work in anything, you know, in, in close and in, in medical. And maybe some do, but vast majority don't, you know, but I, I think one of the cool things that we're going to cover today, it's just the idea of leadership under fire. You know, this idea that, I mean, you're a trauma surgeon and you, you have to make life and death decisions almost instantaneously. You're under pressure. You're having to, you know, lead a team through a very difficult and complex surgery. And at the same time, you know, you have to get results. I mean, you, the failure is not an option in, in your industry. And I think that's going to be the heart of what we're getting at, because no matter what industry uh, a leader is a part of an organization's working through, if you can, in the worst situations, be a rock for your team and know how to lead and know what leadership style it accounts for, I mean, that is going to be the heart of our episode today. So first off, you know, before we dive into that, I would love to hear a little bit about your story, a little bit about, you know, what you've learned as a trauma surgeon, especially now, you know, that you're um, in more of a leadership role and in this um role of building others? You know, it's interesting. The medical profession in our society is, is viewed as one of the lead professions, right? And uh, people look up to physicians, the physician workforce for a whole variety of things. And yet it's fascinating uh, at this stage, actually, as you go through medical school and as you go through your specialty training, you really don't get any exposure to leadership or management training in a formalized sort of way. You, you kind of learn things on the streets, on the fly. And <clears throat> I think that's gradually changing. And that's why an organization such as ours exists. We, we sort of function as that bridge for leadership uh, for those individuals that start to recognize they need some more education, some more experience. But in terms of my own uh, journey, you know, the, the, the world of trauma surgery and surgical intensive care medicine is um, very rich with uh, rapid decision making and uh, working with multidisciplinary teams and really trying to, uh, you know, lead and manage through complex uh, scenarios. Um, and that's in the emergency department, it's in the operating room, it's in the ICU, and it's actually... Uh, in the pre-hospital environment? How do you interact with those who are picking up folks who have been badly injured? And then it also goes in the post-hospital environment. And how do you help folks continue to get back to their normal lives? So as I was kind of going through my career, I was very privileged to be able to work at some high-end uh, academic centers for 25 years or so. What I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed <clears throat> the clinical side of it, every day was different. It uh, forced you into rapid decision-making and oftentimes took you, took you into areas of um, <clears throat> clinical care that uh, is just non-routine in the so-called elective settings. But I also got to appreciate that it's complicated to make all of the systems work properly. If, again, if you're going to run it from pre-hospital setting all the way through the in-hospital setting to the post-acute care setting, and then how do you help people get their lives back together, that's a whole set of systems. And so as I got into mid-career, I found myself spending a little bit more time thinking about those systems. How do you get them better integrated? How do you make them more efficient? And that obviously then takes a lot of leadership, a lot of management skills to begin doing that. Um, 
But then as well, as I got more interested in that side of it, uh, I also recognized that I was wanting to help and try and create this larger scale of change. And so I've been very fortunate in terms of being able to shift out of that clinical environment. And I've been working in what's termed the so-called organized healthcare aspects. You know, healthcare is an industry. Healthcare is an industry. And so it's got a lot of professional associations. It's got a lot of uh, governmental um, entities involved there. It's got a lot of sectors inside the industry. And so in order to create that larger scale, you need to be thinking in all those different sectors and how do you get them to be working together? I think if you add it up, quite honestly, there's uh, 18 different sectors of sorts in this healthcare industry. And they're all poking around trying to get their piece of, in the United States anyways, that roughly three and a half trillion dollar uh, economy. And yet we don't do it in an organized and coordinated way. So uh, this association, uh, as I said at the beginning, is oriented really to try and create that larger scale change. And we're fortunate to be able to do it with the physician workforce and the leaders of the physician workforce and, and the organizations where they're working. So we're um, really trying to keep leveraging that opportunity. So take us into, you know, the operating room, because obviously that's where a lot of the leadership under pressure, I mean, really comes in. You know, let's say you have a, a critical trauma patient that gets, you know, admitted into the ER. And I mean, it's, it's you know, it's go time. Yeah. You right. know, explain kind of what, what that culture is like in there. Explain kind of the mood of the situation, because I think there's a lot of organizational leaders that find themselves in situations where they feel like a lot of pressure. They feel the weight of you know, their organizations on their back. They feel the weight of their dis- this decision that could be, you know, a make or break for their, their organization, their industry for individuals. You know, I mean, that's what you're doing every moment. So kind of start us off by what, what's the dynamic that's happening when, when a patient gets uh, admitted into, into your, into your operating room? Yeah, sure. Well, you know, the phrase that comes to mind is uh, organized chaos, right? Um, And, and yet in behind this chaos, there, there is a systematized approach that needs to be led and managed. Um, As I intimated a moment ago, the, there actually in many communities, not all, there's a pre-hospital communication beginning to occur when there's a bad accident or an industrial fall or there's a bad shooting. Um, that pre-hospital environment is dispatched, they arrive, they assess, and then they start to communicate to the trauma centers. Um, then there's triage decisions. Okay, is this the type of decision that's needed uh, that the emergency room doctors can look after? And there's always confusion between trauma surgeons and emergency docs, but is this a situation the emergency room docs can do? If so, great, it just stays down there. But for the higher end stuff, the, the, the true life and death stuff, if you will, um, the trauma team gets activated. Another communication system. And then the, the leader of the trauma team uh, comes down with his team or her team to the emergency department into that resuscitation area and uh, works with the emergency department, works with the nurses, the techs, the members of the surgery team. And then if there is a need for that patient to go immediately to the operating room, I've often said, you know, the best way to get in the hospital and the best way to get to where you need to be is come in as a bad trauma because you can get in and out of the emergency department in two minutes and up to the operating room in 10. If that's what your goal is, then go get yourself injured. But no, that shouldn't, that shouldn't be your that shouldn't be your goal, should it? But 
that's the point though. You can get through very quickly up into the operating room if that's what's needed. And that's because of good leadership, good management, and the synchronizing of these teams so that they're there. Once you're in the operating room, it's another set of teams, right? You've got the anesthesiologists, you've got the surgeons, you've got the techs, the OR nurses, they're all roaring around and yet there's gotta be someone in charge. This is one of those situations where it's a command and control type of leadership. And so that trauma surgeon is in charge of that room and there everybody's listening, everybody knows their role. And then there's this coordination of what's going on. You, you go through the procedure, the anesthesiology folks are keeping up with you, the nurses and the techs are keeping up with you. And then you've got to take the patient over to the ICU, right? Because then you're shifting to another team entirely. And so you've got to have a transfer of information, get that team up to speed as to what's going on. And uh, <clears throat> there's all, all sorts of rapid movements going on. And if you've seen some of those images in public media and television where there's, it just seems like there's a spaghetti morass of lines floating down from the sky and going into the patient. There's a tube in every orifice and there's lines all over the place. There's stuff flowing in there and that's all got to be coordinated so there isn't any error occurring. So that's kind of the synopsis of it. So in that setting, yeah, it's a lot of command and control, but it's a strong coordination of teams and everybody knows their role for those settings and how to get through it. And then done well, hopefully the patient uh, does well and the family gets engaged. Dr. Anga, just to follow up on that, and I, I think there's a parallel here with just the larger, in the physician setting, for everybody listening, right? We, at, at, as leaders, at times we find ourselves in a situation where we have to give direction. You know, it's command and control. There's a hierarchy. You follow things so that you can get stuff done when the stakes are high. And definitely the trauma situation is that. We find that in business. Right. Uh, whether it's crisis management or response to a, 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 a customer that needs a, a rapid intervention with service. Um, you know, they talk in healthcare how the leadership skills that are taught really well, I think, in medical school for that clinical command and control environment, that when a physician has to translate now to go from very specific tactical leadership to now strategic leadership, it's it, that, that, that putting, taking off the, 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 the trauma room or the clinical leadership hat where it's tactical and putting on the strategic sort of executive hat can be a difficult transition for a physician. Um, and I think, talk about that. Cause I think that's also that, 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 that could be a difficult transition for any leader because they might have talents in one area and it's hard to transition to the other. But in order to be a really good executive leader, you've got to be able to enter, especially as a physician, enter those roles almost seamlessly and be able to, you know, just on, on the, almost on the turn of a, on the turn of a, a second, you know, shift gears and, mm -hmm. and the, and what you do under tactically might not work well strategically. Yeah, no, it's a great point, Phil. And, um, you know, I'll start it this way. Um, you know, we all easily recognize those highly charismatic alpha personality types of leaders, right? Everybody sort of gets drawn to them because they, they, they seem to have the answer for everything all of the time. But actually, when you look critically at the literature, 
those types of leaders tend to be short bursts of success and many times will go down in flames for some reason. The more steady leaders who have a strong element of humility, who have a strong um, so-called emotional intelligence, who are good at embracing others and being nurturing and supportive, those leaders tend to get better results, whether it's in business, whether it's in sports, whether it's in healthcare. And so what you're driving at with your question is we have to do the same thing in healthcare. And unfortunately, physicians in their current training environment are still sort of brought up to be independent thinkers and autonomy uh, oriented in terms of how they operate. So it's an acquired skill to have to one, recognize that that's not the only leadership style you need. And depending on the environment or depending on the situation, you need different types of leadership styles. So yeah, that trauma setting we just went through, that's command and control. But that's not going to work when you come in and try to be command and control and you're talking to a bunch of non-clinical folks or you're talking to other clinicians who aren't necessarily trauma surgery. Um, and you have to shift your uh, approach. And, and it's kind of like an internal switch. You have to be very mindful that you're not in the operating room right now and that you've got to take on a different type of an approach with interacting to others. Be able to listen be able to hear what's being said, be able to offer your own contributions in a diplomatic voice, and then to be able to integrate your thoughts with the other thoughts so that you're better able to function as a team as you're thinking strategically. There's strategic thinking and there's tactical thinking. That's kind of part of the difference between, one difference anyways, between leadership and management, right? But you've got to do it as a team and depending on what the situation is you're dealing with, then uh, some of that, it's a full team thing. Everybody's voice is equal. And then other times, as you say, it's just a hierarchy. And humans being humans, we tend to want to be in a hierarchy. You can, you can still, you know, you can take a room full of 50 CEOs, get them into some kind of session, and there, there will be a hierarchy. <laughs> you know, there'll be a couple of CEOs who are now all of a sudden, for whatever reason, at the top of the hierarchy. That's just human beings. And we just have to accept that. There are, uh, when you look, there's the proverbial bell-shaped curve, and the majority of people need or want to be led. There is about 10, 15% of the population who don't want to be led, and they don't have the answers on how to lead. And then there's another 10, 15% of the population who are just natural born leaders and people will naturally follow them. And so part of our trick that you're doing in the Kelly School and what we're trying to do is one, help those individuals identify themselves that they're potential leaders, but then give them the skills, give them the insights, give them the education to help them refine some of that natural leadership skill that they have so they can become higher performers and get better results. You know, one thing I want to bring back is uh, when when you were talking about all the different teams, they got to get, you know, all the information they have to get, all the, you know, communication has to be in place. You know, you have to pass things off successfully so that the, your patient is can get, you know, from the ER or I guess from the ambulance to the ER, to trauma, to ICU. You know, there's there's a process for each one of those to make it, you know, as smooth as possible. It doesn't just happen. You know, there, there is not like 
people just show up to the OR and they just automatically know what to do. They automatically know who's in charge. They automatically know how things work. I mean, there is a plan on the back end of that. So, you know, talk about the importance of having a, you know, clear communication strategy or having a plan before, you know, a crisis hits or before, um, you know, you have your patient that comes into the OR to receive care because without that, I mean, that is very easy for, you know, someone to not be where they're supposed to be when they're supposed to be there, which could ultimately, um, you know, impact the life of your patient. Yeah, that's no, a great point. Great point, Matt. And um, what you're teasing up is is the importance of communication. And uh, one, one of the positions I had when I was with the uh, main accreditation agency in the country was to review across the country, all of what were termed the sentinel events, the, the bad things that happened. They are, under, with accreditation, they're oblig- hospitals are obligated to report these things. And then the accreditation agency reviews these so-called sentinel events. And then we look at all of the data and amass the data, et cetera, et cetera. And three quarters of the time, on average, the number one event, or the number one issue, sorry, um, that created that sentinel event to occur failure of proper communication, failure of proper communication. And you can define it in different sorts of ways. So yeah, so how do you improve the communication? You know, so there needs to be one education. There needs to be clarity of roles and responsibilities. And then you need to help the individuals involved understand what those roles and responsibilities and why. That's the educational component. Then there needs to be practice. And, you know, there's, there's lots of opportunities in healthcare. And, and this is not just in trauma, but there, you know, many of the medical schools and uh, training programs around the country have opened up large scale uh, simulation centers so they can take their teams to true scenarios, but using dummies and, you know, different team modalities, but that's so that you can build your Uh, you know, it's often referred to as your muscle memory, right? You shouldn't be trying to do something complex for the first time on the first patient. So you've got to have an understanding, then you've got to have some practice and that builds your skills so that when the real stuff is going on, then everybody's functioning properly. Another piece in there is um, kind of knowing what different scenarios could be. And so uh, this is kind of an engineering term, but it's failure modes and effects analysis, so-called FEMA. If you know what you need to do in a certain scenario, then you can anticipate where the glitches might show up. And so you've anticipated the glitches and uh, hopefully they don't occur because you've already anticipated them, right? And Then when the actual event goes on, whatever that event is, and it doesn't have to be in surgery, it could be the emergency room, it could be in the cardiology unit, it could be just in family medicine, somebody shows up with a complicated problem. But then you you deal with the situation, do it as best as you can based on your training, your experience, your understanding of your roles, all that stuff, communication. And then after the, the situation is kind of settled down, the other side of the communication is the debriefing, if you will. Let's, you don't have to debrief on every single thing because then you wouldn't get any work done, right? But on the important things, debrief and kind of go through what worked well, what worked less well, what failed. That then feeds back into your 
uh, your modes and effects analysis. So it's this continuous uh, improvement loop. So, and all of that, Matt, is based on communication eventually, right? That's why, no surprise, communication is that number one issue when things fail. Boop. And that brings up my next question that I have, you know, because it's that, you know, how do you debrief, especially as, you know, Phil said, there's times where you have that, you know, command and control hat on and the situation calls for it. And that's the leadership, you know, style that the situation calls for. But then after the surgery or after the fact, you know, then you're putting on like an executive role, you're having to, you know, lead as a coach or lead as a, you know, a supporter of your team and not really the command and control. But, you know, sometimes your team may not be aware of which mode it is. So how do you as a leader debrief with your team? Let's say you have, or even if you have someone who's being really difficult in the operating room, you know, and, and you're having to be that command and control. And then after the fact, you know, you debrief in a, in a non-commanding and control way. You know, how do you work that communication in the debrief strategy with your team in those, in those leadership switches? Yeah, another great question. Um, and, you know, there's different levels of that. Um, some places uh, for any type of procedure uh, will make it built into their processes that at the end of the procedure, the team just stands there for two minutes and just does bang, 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 what worked, what didn't, what can we do better? And then it's done, right? Um, on the situations that went well, then those are really fast. On the situations that don't go well, then oftentimes those types of things, yeah, you do your brief, um, discussion, but then you kick it up a notch and say, well, let's review this at our division or at our departmental level. And then everybody begins to learn from that. If it's that, if it's a horrendous outcome, then you kick it up to the institutional level so that the entire institution can learn from it. And this is where healthcare is kind of in transition right now. It used to be such that you wouldn't talk about these things that didn't work well. Everybody loved to talk about the things that went well. You know, great, save, we did wonderful, all that stuff. But the times that it doesn't work well, folks tended not to talk about it. And yet, if you got people to talk honestly amongst themselves, you, they all knew something bad happened. They all knew something bad happened. And they could probably point the finger as to why that happened. So we've evolved, thankfully, in the industry where we're now uh, encouraging reporting of these events and so that nobody is really nailed as the bad guy. It used to be such that, you know, somebody would get hung out to dry as the scapegoat for why that bad thing happened. That doesn't really happen anymore because we recognize it's communication. There's multiple contributions to when something doesn't work well, in the same way there's multiple contributions to why it works well. So <clears throat> reporting is important, then the discussion in an objective way, and then offering balanced constructive feedback to the individuals, not the one person, where things can go better is, is much more smooth. And you build that over time, you, you roll up your stats over time and you're able to report um, here's our improvements or here's where we still need work, et cetera. It's, it's complicated to run a performance improvement thing. And leadership's important. If an institution is going to take on a strong stance towards performance improvement, then the CEO and the C-suite, they all have to buy into that and they need to support it. And then there needs to be the appropriate levels of uh, training all the way down through the, 
the hierarchy and into the different departments. So everybody buys onto this type of an approach. And we as physician leaders um, have to embrace that and not bucket. Dr. Angood, you mentioned uh, you mentioned earlier about the importance of humility and being effective mm-hmm. in those when you put that when that physician puts that executive hat on. Um, and I, if you if you if you go into that topic a little bit more, it's it's really a difference between ego and confidence. Obviously, ego is the toxic can be the toxic force. Confidence is uh, the needed part of it. You know, and, and I know part of medical training is to build that confidence through residency so that when the patient is facing um, immediate harm, the, the, the physician is not second guessing herself or himself. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious. Uh, and, and, and what can happen is, and this is true, I think, for any leader, is that they don't it can get it. They can get to a space where they're doing their job as a leader, but they can't. Sometimes they can't separate those two. And sometimes the ego kind of drifts in. I think that's just kind of human nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, physicians for, physicians are kind of, people kind of laugh, say, well, physicians have a big head. But some of that's because they've got to be confident. But also some of it could be because of the ego, egotism. How do you, when, what is your, what is your advice on how, or how does, as you've gone in your career and you've, you've, you've worked with the APL to sort of help train physicians, what is the most important element of training physicians to be executive leaders, to train them to separate, to preserve the confidence, but to minimize the ego? Well, I wish I had the real answer to that one, Phil, but thank you. <laughs> and, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, the way well, there's some pre-selection bias, right? The types of individuals who want to go into medical school and become doctors, uh, yes, they have a high level of altruism and idealism as some of their core personalities, but they already have a fairly high desire to um, build their own confidence to create change. They want to help people, but they also want to create change in those people's lives. But physicians also love gratitude and they love thanks. You know, I mean, nothing more heartwarming than you go and talk to a patient and they're all full of gratitude because you saved their life or because you fixed their bobo and whatnot. So it's this interesting um, paradox, if you will. They, they have a high need for gratitude and thankfulness, but they also have this strong autonomy, this independence and um, gradually increasing confidence. Now, depending on which specialty folks go into, Uh, There are different levels of um, confidence. There are in the procedural-based types of uh, disciplines like surgery or interventional cardiology or interventional radiology, where you're doing stuff, those individuals um, need a certain number of narcissistic traits and strong ego in order for them to be able to make those decisions in fast time. They have to have that confidence. Whereas some of the so-called cognitive specialties that have a little bit more time to spend with patients, uh, they don't need to have as much of that strong ego drive and that nar- those set of healthy narcissistic traits that help them make those quick decisions. So they tend to be more nurturing, more handholding, and, and very much more compassionate. So there's a, um, a complexion across the different disciplines that varies. But to your question, I think 
one of the ways that we can help physicians to make that transition is to remind them of their altruism, remind them of their idealism, and why are they really trying to participate in healthcare? And as they recognize that, oftentimes then we're able to get them to back away from that command and control, ego-driven, overly confident type of behavior and shift into a little bit more humble approach. And humility is, is tough. You know, I, I um, reflect often on my transition out of the clinical environment into my current roles. And quite honestly, I am still unlearning some of those traits that were embedded into me as a trauma surgeon. And they're stereotype behaviors that you acquire because that's how you want to succeed in your discipline. But a good, true leader, even an effective manager, will recognize that in order to be more successful, it's not about you, it's about all the others around you. And how can you adjust your own style, your own approach, so that you can help those others do better? And that's where that trick of helping physicians identify with their altruism and idealism because they like to help others, get them to turn the key around, get them off themselves and onto others. Again, Dr. Peter Angood, board-certified trauma surgeon and CEO of the American Association for Physician Leadership, which is the only professional organization solely focused on leadership education and management training for the physician workforce and the organization's they're a part of Dr. Peter Angud. Thank you so much for being our guest on the ROI podcast. Oh, man. Thank you so much. And Phil, thank you for your questions. You both challenged me and you guys are doing wonderful stuff. I look forward to working with uh, Kelly School and the business, School of Business in the way that we spoke about. And uh, healthcare is important. Pay attention to it, no matter who you are and where you are in your life. This has been another episode of the ROI podcast presented by the Indiana University Kelly School of Business. I'm your host, Matt Martella, joined by the Associate Dean of the Kelly School, Phil Powell. Here on the show, our mission is to help organizations make better business decisions. We'll see you next week.